Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukie, the data editor, and I'm talking today with Natasha Loder, our healthcare correspondent, and Oliver Morden, our briefings editor. In this episode, we're going to talk about the problems with clinical trials, and we'll discuss how one Russian physicist turned Silicon Valley billionaire is on the hunt for extraterrestrial life. First, we'll start with clinical trials. Studies by drug companies to test their products are not as closely scrutinized as the public often believes. Natasha Loder joins us from Chicago to tell us more. Natasha, what's going on? Well, hi. Um, So look, in a nutshell, the problem is that about half of all clinical trials on humans have not been published. And those that have been published are much more likely to be positive results. And it's an interesting situation. A company that's uh, working on a drug is able to run eight trials on a drug and actually publish only the two results that they happen to like. And this sort of bias uh, comes on top of the fact that industry-funded trials are also much more likely to produce positive, flattering results just because of the way they're set up and analysed. So why should this have been allowed in the first place? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, I think it's a problem that has been known about for decades, but it's part of a sort of broader issue, which is to do with the fact that scientific journals don't or haven't in the past uh, liked publishing negative results. Um, And there have been a number of efforts to actually try and encourage pharmaceutical companies and academics to publish all their results, but they haven't worked. I think academics probably don't find the time And, you know, industry as well, it's a question of resources, but also clearly uh, there are some things that they probably would rather not publish. So things are changing now. Well, what's happening? What's happening is that the Europeans uh, have decided enough is enough and they're going to oblige uh, pharmaceutical companies to do this. And this is going to come into force in 2016. And in America, which, which has already had legislation to force companies to publish results, there's been so much wiggle room, really, with the rules that, that nobody really, very few people actually have, have gone ahead and done this. But these rules are kind of getting tightened up now. So there's hope, um, for sure, that going forward, uh, the problem of sort of missing data is going to be solved. Although, you know, we have to wait to see. It's Oliver here. Is, is the problem here that actually drugs that don't work get um, let out? Or is it that details of how the drugs work and what their counterindications might be and what classes of people they might work less well for don't get analysed? Both of those things, really. Um, I mean, if you take example, um, there was an antidepressant drug called riboxetine. And, um, you know, when this was being prescribed by the um, author Ben Goldacre, who's a, a prominent critic about on this issue. When he was prescribing this drug, uh, he went to look at the data and found two trials saying that this antidepressant uh, was better than other drugs that were on the market. And so he prescribed it. 
Um, but it turned out there were actually human trials had been done in three times the number of patients uh, that had been unpublished that showed the exact opposite, that in fact this, this drug performed worse than other drugs. And so, you know, this raises a whole bunch of ethical issues, really, because it means that, you know, the patients that have been prescribed this drug are being denied the opportunity to go on a better drug. And it also means that the people who volunteered for the trials that were not published um, sort of volunteered in vain because the data was hidden and was not used to advance medical science, as they would have been told when they signed up for those trials. So, so we're going to add a new veneer of integrity at the level of data to the drug companies' trials, will the data be public for other companies to access and learn from? So it depends what you mean by data, Ken. I mean, what they have to do is they have to register that they've done a trial, and then within a certain time period, they have to publish results uh, from those trials. And um, they don't necessarily have to produce a sort of very kind of fine-grained amount of data on that. That's a kind of, you know, the actual individual patient data is another issue. But they do have to say, you know, what they did and what they found and, you know, give some pretty hard details um, that, yes, of course, other companies would be able to use this. And do you think the rules are going to be effective? Do you think we'll have uh, better policymaking for drugs and better drugs? Yeah, I really do. I mean, I think, I mean, the key thing is is whether these, these rules are going to be enforced. And I think the Europeans are unlikely to pass legislation um, like this and then just sort of let pharma companies continue unchallenged. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do think there's a good reason to be hopeful. And I do think it will improve the evidence base absolutely going forward. And, you know, you've got to remember that I mean, patients, for example, more often these days are actually researching their own drugs. And so, you know, you and I, when we're prescribed a drug, the first thing we'll do is we'll go on the Internet to find out what's known about that drug. And so it's, it, this sort of data is much more relevant uh, than it was in the past when, when your doctor maybe knew kind of very, very little about each of the drugs that they prescribed. Great. Natasha Loder, thank you very much. Now to move further afield to the hunt for alien life. There is a new project underway. Ali, what's going on? Well, yesterday, a Russian uh, physicist and entrepreneur, Yori Milner, convened uh, a chunk of the world's press, including me, and some very starry scientists, including the awesomely famous Stephen Hawking at the Royal Society in London, to announce that he's putting more money than anyone else has ever put before into the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And why is he doing this? Well, he's a big space nut. Really? Um, he's, uh, there are many other things that are interesting about him, but, you know, he was named after Yuri Gagarin, who first sure, orbited the Earth in uh, the year of his birth, and the year of Yuri Milner's birth, that is, not Yuri Gagarin's birth, because that <laughs> would have just been crazy. Um, and he's he, he really likes this stuff, and he also realizes that now is a good time for, to be doing this for three different reasons. One is that uh, a space telescope called Kepler has shown that there really are a lot of lukewarm, Earth-like planets around stars in the galaxy. So there are billions of planets where we think life evolved. The chance that there might be technological civilizations out there a bit like ours is certainly looks a little bit more likely than it did before, though, of course, how likely, we don't know. Second thing is that, as he knows as a guy from Silicon Valley, the ability to process signals is getting better and better and better because of better computer hardware and software. And the third thing is that these are kind of hard times in radio astronomy for some people because 
in general, government funding for some astronomy is being cut, whereas funding for sort of like more ambitious cutting-edge programs is going up. And so the, it's much easier now to get time on the world's best radio telescopes than it's ever been before. And so instead of being a marginalized thing that people do now and then on an off weekend when the adult supervision is out of the movies, uh, you can now do the search for extraterrestrial intelligence using real proper amounts of telescope time. So that's what Mr. Milner is buying with uh, $100 million over 10 years. He's buying really good signal processing, a bunch of scientists, and time on the world's best radio telescopes. I have a question, Ollie. Yeah. Um, so how would we know if we got a signal from an alien intelligent life form? That's a really interesting question. Basically, the idea is that an alien signal will be... Re- um, noticeably repetitive and complex in ways that natural systems don't uh, don't don't exhibit. So one example that's been used for sort of like a deliberate communication, if you were trying to send out a message to another star saying, hello, I'm intelligent, you might, for instance, send the sequence of prime numbers. Very hard to see how a natural process might give you this, uh, a set of pulses sort of like going through the sequence of prime numbers. For eavesdropping on other civilizations, um, that gets a little bit harder because it's one of the basics of communication theory that really intelligent coding systems sound more and more like noise. And so if you're actually trying to overhear people, what you'd overhear if you listen to the Earth from a distance, uh, from a certain distance, you'd basically overhear powerful uh, air defense radars and aircraft radars and indeed radars used for planetary exploration. And you'd notice that those were artificial because they'd be very, very narrow band and ping, 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 and you'd say that's not a sort of thing that a planet does. But more generally, the worry is that for, for eavesdropping purposes, the Earth is actually just getting quieter because we used to broadcast an awful lot of radio energy out. We've become considerably quieter over the last few decades because we do so much more efficient systems that use less energy and through fibre optics. Interesting. But we're not going to have a, a Jodie Foster moment, you know. Like I want a Jodie Foster moment. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, I mean, leaving aside all the reasons anyone might want a Jodie Foster moment, that is for di- definitely the far and away the best bit in that film Contact where the booming signal comes out of the comes out of the box. That's absolutely terrific. And I think that is actually a sequence of primes. Wonderful stuff. But, 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 I mean, in, in the film Contact, she's actually listening for it, whereas what you're saying is we've now got a vast computer that's going to go ping when it detects something that's interesting. Yeah, there is that. But that said, I mean, even at the time when they were doing Contact, I think everyone was fairly clear that, yes, by and large, you would probably notice it in the signal first. I mean, there's a famous case from an earlier SETI search where the computer's spitting out the numbers, and there is one thing that looks remarkably like a signal, uh, and the guy who was observ- the guy who was going through the data, a volunteer, just wrote "Wow" in the margin next to it, and that's now known in the SETI world as the "Wow" signal. Of course, we've been back and looked at that bit of the sky again and again. I say we, I mean they. They've been back and looked at the sky again and again, and they've never seen anything like the "Wow" signal again. So, was it just a strange transient? Was it someone just looking our way for a moment? Who can say? Natasha, let me build on on the points that you're making and ask Ali. Are we not privileging the fact that we are looking for life that resembles ours because we're looking in areas that have planets somewhat similar to ours? And secondly, signals that we can record, even though we already know inherently that the nature of how we would detect such signals are, are go down to the lowest common denominator of our technology, not theirs. Sure. There's a, there's a very basic principle of symmetry in SETI research since 
Frank Drake, the guy to the first searches who was there yesterday, first thought about the subject, which was that he was looking at their new radio telescope at Green Bank in West Virginia, and he was saying, you know, if there was something like this around another star transmitting, something like this, this dish, would be able to hear it. And so the idea of what it is you're looking for with SETI isn't so much extraterrestrial intelligence broadly conceived, it's radio astronomers. This is radio astronomers looking for radio astronomers. And it's the best you can do because basically there's very little that any other astronomer, anyone else astronomer or not can do that could be seen from another star. Though you could use a laser beam and they will be looking for laser light as well. But more generally, the question of looking for life that isn't out there in the radio spectrum, that's a much more difficult problem. I suspect uh, that Mr. Milner is probably going to move on into that problem in in later years uh, because... There are various ways that you could make telescopes a bit like Kepler or like some other telescopes that are out there to actually look for planets for signs of life. It's a very, very difficult project. But I wouldn't be surprised if a man that ambitious were to sort of like try and push the Earth a little bit towards the idea of detecting life, that even life that isn't sort of like shouting up and down and saying, hey there, look at me. That's great. Ollie, thank you very much. Natasha, thank you as well for joining us. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. Before we close the program, allow me to make an appeal. We would love to hear from you and get your feedback. If you have suggestions for how we can improve the show, please email us at letters at economist.com. That's letters at economist.com. For more science and technology, go to economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.